Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show brought to you by TennisBalls.com on Blog Talk Radio's You Are Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I am excited to bring you two high-performance coaches today who have been doing some work together, even though they're on opposite sides of the country. And the two of them are going to kind of take us through the whole range of junior tennis from the 10 and unders up to college recruiting and the ins and outs of that process. And so I'm really excited to kind of jump right in. I don't want to waste too much time giving you background, but just to introduce the two guests, we have Bill Riddle, who is a coach in Tennessee. He is a high-performance coach. He travels all over the world, literally all over the world, giving workshops to other coaches, and he works with high-performance players. He works with adults, um, with league players. I mean, he really just kind of spans the whole range of tennis. And with him today is a guy that you you have heard on this show many times before, Frank Giampaolo. And Frank, as you all know, is the author of the Tennis Parent Bible, and he is also a high-performance coach who also travels all over the place. And so I'm just so excited to have the two of them together on the air today. Let me click them on so they are live on their mics. Guys, thanks for joining us, and I'm, I'm excited to jump right in. Hey, hey, Lisa and Bill, how's it going? Everybody out there? Hey, how's it going? So thanks. glad to have thanks you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So um, I'm not going to waste anybody's time today. Let's let's get right into this. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is let's start with 10 and under tennis and what happens when players start to age out of the 10 and unders, which are typically, the 10 and unders are typically pretty casual. Kids are just kind of learning the ropes of tournament play, maybe learning how to keep score on their own, call lines, all those things. And then they transition into the 12s, and all of a sudden things get a little bit more serious out there. And I'd love to hear you guys talk about that transition process and kind of the, the disconnect that happens with a lot of players at that stage of the game. Hey, Bill, go, go for it, and I'll, I'll try to jump in. Well, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting, and, and um, you know, there's been a lot of time and money and energy spent on 10 and under tennis the last few years. And, um, you know, but what, what we find is the, the biggest population of kids that come into the sport of tennis come in uh, around 11 uh, years old, 12 years old, and they find themselves you know, either uh, you know, missing that red ball group or uh, coming out of red ball. You know, there's this big kind of wide open space there of, of, of programs and league play and tournament play where kids are using orange balls, they're using green balls, some are still using uh, yellow balls. So it, it's kind of a, uh, a bit of a, a struggle for, for players, uh, parents, and coaches. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a challenge um, because we're trying to get everybody onto the same page as much as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, every kid is going to be a little bit different as far as their maturity and their, their body type and 
strengths and, and, and certain abilities. So, you know, having one cookie cutter formula is, is unfortunately, I think, um, not possible uh, across the board. And so, you know, we kind of met with just understanding that that every kid is a little bit different, um, even within the same club or same facility. You know, it, it's it's hard to just say this is one way of doing it. Um, and you know, and you've got those kids that are that are looking to, you know, focus on tennis or spend more time with their tennis. Um, and and you know, you're trying to take those kids down a different track than the kids that are still a little more uh, laid back with it and, and still kind of more wreck and having fun. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a challenge um, across the board for, for coaches, um, players, and, and the parents. Ken, let me jump in real quick and ask, you know, this whole idea of specializing in one sport, um, there's been a lot written about that. There's been a lot of research done around it um, as it relates to injuries in children and burnout. So, from y'all's perspective, at what point for a kid that aspires to play college tennis, and we're not even going to talk about professional tennis today because that's just such a whole different animal, let's focus on the college tennis pathway. For those kids, at what point do you say they need to really focus solely on their tennis and leave the other sports for just kind of pick up play with their buddies on the weekends? Well, I'll give you my take here. This is Frank in the, you know, over on the West Coast. But um, in my opinion, anyway, I think by the age of 12, maybe 13, the, the junior athletes need to specialize into their individual sport. Um, it's kind of based on that 10,000-hour rule. That's, it's not actually a rule. It's just a guideline. But 20 hours a week for 10 years, and you're pretty close to world class, it, it depends on quality versus quantity, you know, of, of lesson programs and hitting. But, but you know, in a nutshell, that's really it. It, it. For a kid to play D1 or even D2, they need about 10 years of pretty serious training in, in today's world. And folks that are listening here in the States, you got to keep in mind that your little Kelly's rival for college, it's not the other girl down the street. It's, Cosmina Jakakova, you know, from Europe. Those are the kids that are coming <laughs> yeah. over. So, yeah. And they're doing 40 hours a week since the age of six. So that's the competition, really. And uh, so that's my take on that. And uh, just the last couple of things regarding this transition from the 10 and under. I love the 10 and under. I think it's very structured, very successful. Um, what happens afterwards, as a lot of you out there have read, is that 70% of all the players that play the game, they, they actually quit the game in the tweener years. And um, there are solutions to, to it. But the, the problem, the number one problem that kids report is um, their parents. Their parents get a little crazy when now they're being judged and they're spending a lot more money on competition. And, you know, parents are left to their own devices at 11, 12, 13, 14. It's not as structured. But if the parents are uneducated, that's trouble. And uh, and the other side is with 10 and under, it's a beautiful thing, but they, the coaches mainly focus on the hardware. So if we look at an athlete, 
the same way you look at a computer, the athlete has hardware and software, just like the computer, and the hardware is strokes and athleticism. Software is mental and emotional. Now what happens is kids get into tournament play at age you know, 11, 12, 13. They've never even thought about working on mental or emotional, and now they start falling apart. It, it really it drives them batty because they think just because they have clean strokes on the practice court, they should win all the tournaments, but, but they don't. So anyway, that's my, that's my take on that. Bill, well, you want to chime in uh, on that one? Yeah. Yeah, Frank. Frank's right on the money, and and what happens a lot of times is, uh, and speaking from a standpoint of a, as a former college coach for nine years, you know, I wanted to find uh, an athlete to recruit, and you know, some of these kids that, that specialize too early um, or just focus on primarily tennis, you know, I find that they're they're not well-rounded athletes because they they just don't have the the skill set, uh, running, jumping, you know, those, those different skills that, that athletes would have, uh, maybe they're lacking some quickness or some speed or, or strength um, that maybe cross uh, sports would provide them if they've played it, you know, up until 10, 11, 12, something like that. Uh, and every kid's going to be a little bit different, but I agree with Frank, somewhere between like 12 and 14, you start to phase out of those multiple sports into – you know, at least just down to two, um, you know, tennis being your primary sport and maybe you're getting to play some rat basketball or something like that to kind of offset some of your, your, your physical training. But, but, you know, most importantly, you know, moms and dads and coaches have to understand that, that you know, we, we want athletes um, that are playing tennis, not just tennis players that can, can strike a ball and, and he's right on the money that, you know, those team sports and those other sports will help them develop those uh, software skills, that mental and emotional side of things of dealing with losses and dealing with, uh, you know, uh, bad calls in, in a soccer match or something like that. But just, you know, understanding the whole mindset of, of competing and in, in, in playing sports, uh, it's not just tennis, it's, it's across the board. So at what stage do you, as a coach, introduce the software piece? And is it something that happens kind of organically during practices, or is this a separate piece of the puzzle that needs to be addressed? Well, Lisa, from my side, um, the analogy I use with with my parent seminars and and player workshops is that – we need to use the school methodology from as early as possible. So when the kids go to school, they go to an hour of math class, then science class, then English class. And those are, you know, the different school components to hopefully develop a well-rounded child. Well, in tennis, there's also components. There's primary strokes, secondary strokes, off-court in the gym, off-court cardio, pattern development. There's so many different classes and, and Coaches and, and juniors, in my opinion, they should be focusing on those things probably by the age of, you know, nine or ten or maybe depending on when they start playing. But within the first year or so, a high IQ coach would be adding those things already into the developmental plan. And one of the ways they do that is by applying negative scoring drills 
So every time they do a tennis lesson, let's say just for example, the child has to hit cross-court forehands. And every time they get one in cross-court, and we're going really basic right now, but every time they get one in past the service line, they get a point. One, two, three. Now they miss one, it's minus one to their score. So now they're accountable. And that's one of the things that's missing in the practice courts around the world is accountability for mistakes. And it's so fun. You see it all the time in adult tennis. They come into the bar after men's night. They just made 58 unforced errors, but they had one blazing winner up the line. And they go into the bar, and for 20 minutes, all they talk about is their one winner that they hit down the line. <laughs> it's great, but nobody mentions the 58 errors. But So I would do that. I would think about negative scoring a little bit and start to add mental and emotional. And just from that note, mental toughness, in my opinion, is the X's and O's of strategies and tactics, knowing your game. And how many times have we heard parents and coaches say to the kid, just play your game, Joey. You're going to be great. Just play your game. And the kid has a blank stare because they have no idea what that means. Play your game. What is that? They, were, they weren't taught their top seven patterns. Their A plan is hard-hitting baseline. Their B plan is backcourt retriever. So as coaches, we have to teach people um, their game, their strategies, their tactics. And then the emotional side, which is how to handle all of the performance anxieties that they're going to run into. So those are all fun protocols, and it's our job to teach. Bill, what do you think? Bill, let me, well, I, let me ask Bill a question before, Bill, you answer that, because I want you to answer both. Yeah. Now that college tennis has gone to no-ad scoring, it seems to me that the negative scoring in the drills is even more important because every single point in the match, in a college match now, is crucial. And, I mean, you know, I've watched matches where a player has had 12 deuce points in a match and lost all 12 of those points. And had the points gone the other way, the match would have gone the other way, right? So so as a former college coach, I'm, I'm... you know, I'm putting it on you, Bill, to maybe address that a little bit in terms of this whole yeah. idea of software development. Well, you know, and, and to kind of, I, I, you know, maybe touch on both of those questions at the same time, it, it, it comes back to, you know, how are the, the athletes, how are the kids training when they're at their facility or their club with their coach? And, and across the board, you know, no, no matter where I go, to find that the the good programs, the, the good coaches are the ones that are putting kids at all the different levels, you know, the, depending on where they are and, and, and where they are mentally. But they're, they're, they're challenging them. They're pushing them um, to be competitive in situations just like that, playing multiple tiebreakers, um, you know, fighting back from, you know, always starting off maybe love 40 um, you know, situ- putting, them, putting them into situations where they have to fight through that allows them that time and that development to become accustomed to it. So when they, when they do reach college and it's every point, you know, literally every point matters, they really can go to autopilot or they can, you know, reflect back to where they were and it doesn't rattle them. You can almost look into the eyes of the kids who have not been put in that situation or maybe have not trained in an environment like that, and you can see in their eyes that they're just not ready for it. 
you know, and every point is, is too big of a point for them to play. So, you know, finding ways to get those kids um, in situations. And, and I go back to, you know, looking at kids when they're playing, say, a basketball game or, or you know, a, a goal kick. You know, when they step up to that line to shoot that free throw and the game's on the line or, you know, they're playing baseball at 10 or 11 and, you know, bases loaded and two strikes. I mean, those are the type of situations just like playing the tiebreakers that allow kids the opportunity to train mentally for big situations or pressure situations. Um, you know, I was fortunate to see it in, in, in my two kids, my son and daughter, when they played other sports early on, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, and, and I've seen it in other kids as well. They have to be given that opportunity or put in that situation so they, they learn how to deal with that. For sure, for sure. And, I mean, it's it's so interesting um, to watch at the collegiate level now because that's where my kid is, you know, so that's, that's the tennis I'm watching these days. Um, you know, these kids that were the, the grinder kids and juniors, you know, who would get down, as you said, love 40 in a game and fight back and fight through the do-sad, do-sad, do-sad battle to win games they don't get to do that in college anymore. And, right. you know, it's a shame, um, but it's it's the reality of the situation. So, you know, better that they enter college prepared to deal with that than be taken by surprise and, you know, never having faced it. Not, please God, if anybody from USTA is listening, not that I'm advocating that junior tennis go to no ad scoring because that is the last thing in the world I want to see happen. But um, but I do think it's important for them to be held accountable in practice matches and, and drills, you know, for those big points, as y'all said. Right. You know, I think um, that that brings us to the topic that if college, you know, tennis has changed now to, to just tiebreakers and then doubles, they just, play, they just play one set and then you no know, as scoring, you know, in regular um, – should that change the way we're training players? And my opinion is yes, absolutely. We have to abide by the stats of the game. And back in the 1980s, when I was the director of the Vic Braden Tennis College, the average singles point was 3.9 hits, and the average doubles point was 2.8 hits. And, and nowadays it's pretty much the same. We know a buddy of ours, Craig, Shaughnessy, does a lot of stats like that where – Mm-hmm. His latest stats is, like a lot of you guys know, but it's 70% of the points end by the fourth hit. 20% of the points go five to nine hits, and only 10% of the points go over you know, the 10-hit mark. But maybe as coaches, we should all be training serve and returns way more. Um, I was just working with a, a D1 college team last week. I won't mention the name of the school. But their, their hour session when I first got there to observe was 50 minutes of rallying back and forth, followed by five minutes of serving, and then they picked up the ball. And that was their session for the day. And so we talked about it, and, and now they're switching it. Now they're doing 45 minutes of serve and return, and then just 10 minutes of grooving and grinding. So I think that's important for coaches and parents. Um, I like to use a, a goofy phrase, but 
and winning tennis and high-performance tennis is in a game of catch or keep away. And, of course, all the people after that know tennis, they know it's a game of keep away. Well, why are our kids, why are they out there playing catch all day? They, they do mini tennis to each other, cross-court to each other, down the line the other way to each other, and they're actually not practicing changing the incoming outgoing angle, incident reflective angles it's called, but they're not, they're not practicing in the manner they're expected to perform. So you know, now they get into the match and they volley right, right back to the opponent. They, they lob short right to the person because the only time they practice lobs is when the other kid puts his finger up at the net and we lob short right to them. So that's one of my challenges. It's pretty funny to get coaches and parents to look at practice in a different way. So you play keep away all day, not catch all day. What, what do you guys think about that? Well, well to add, to my add thought to that, on... if you don't mind. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, well, to kind of add to that, and, and Frank's on the right track, is that, you know, a lot of times we find these, these you know, even some college programs, uh, club programs, academy programs, where there, there's no variety in, in what they're doing on the practice court. You know, they kind of come in, it's the same fed ball or the same live ball drill over and over and over, and it's just, a lot of repetition as opposed to some variety in the way that the athletes are training, um, the different situations they're being put into. So they, they don't just get kind of complacent uh, in, in the way they, they hit the ball or the way they play. Um, and also in, in kind of the progressions of the drills that, that are being done, whether you're at a college level or uh, a junior level, there, there needs to be more, um, time spent with, you know, progressing through the various stages of drills and shots that you hit uh, as opposed to just focus on, on one dimension of, of how to hit the ball. Well, I, I mean, that's so true, but here's the, the challenge. I, I, as I see it, as, and, you know, I am not a coach, far from it, but to train that way is a lot more difficult on the coach's part. Because if you're, you know, setting up a drill where you're training keeping the ball away from the opponent, it's going to mean a lot more ball retrieval um, or you're going to have to have another person on the court. I mean, I can think of all these kind of, you know, objections that coaches might have to training that way. So have you guys come up with, like some really good drills that coaches can use to train, quote, keep away tennis? Well, I, for me, I spend pretty much all day, every day doing that. And the bottom line is, is the drill in the best interest of the athlete or in the best interest of the coach? And sometimes we all know that with academy coaches, they do what's comfortable, almost automatic pilot and hitting the ball back to them in a certain corner is comfortable and easy. And, but, um, yeah, so from my side of the coin, it would be focusing not on strokes as much in this tweener years. You still always want to develop strokes for the rest of your life because the game is always evolving, so you're always going to evolve your strokes. But I think it would be good to work on offense, neutral, defense. So, for example, if it was a dead ball feeding drill, the coach would stand at the deuce side alley 
and move the, 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 the student over there for six to eight balls, and that person has to hightail it and go track down six to eight balls and hit them all to the other side of the court. So they're practicing changing the angle of the ball. And after a basket, the coach goes to the advantage side alley and, and feeds rapid fire, some super high and heavy, some low slice. It's always flexible skills, random. And um, now the athlete over there is getting used to, you know, keep away skills. So now they get into the match, and all these uncomfortable things are a little bit more comfortable. So there are definitely drills for offense, for neutral, for defense. Um, if it was, for example, passing shots and lobs, most coaches around the world go into the net and they have the person hit balls right to them. I would say have the coach come to the net and tell the student, here's four balls. I'm going to move you all over the court back there, four balls in a row. Don't hit one ball to me. Keep it, keep it away from me like you're hitting a passing shot. And then even follow that up with four lobs. You got to hit four lobs way deep over my head, as high as the light, not right to me. And uh, the kids actually get really good, really fast at not hitting it to the opponent. And uh, I must say, since I started to change 2002, when I started to really adapt all that, the kids that I've taught have won over 100 national titles because they're just they're comfortable not just playing catch. So there's fun ways mm-hmm. to go about it. And, Bill, well, I know you do a lot comfort. of coach training. Right. Sorry. Bill, you, you, you train a lot of coaches. So I'm wondering, are you incorporating this stuff um, when you're doing your coaches' trainings? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, I was listening to, to Frank's uh, chat right there, and, and it reminded me of this past weekend when I was in uh, Austin for the USPTA conference and, and talking with the coaches there. And basically, my message to them uh, on Saturday was to get them out of their comfort zone of what they normally do. You know, and when I asked the question, you know, who has four or five drills that you like to do, uh, you know, they all raised their hand, and who kind of goes back to that those four or five drills all the time, and they kind of all raise their hand again. You know, a lot of times coaches just become very comfortable, maybe even a little complacent in what they're doing out there on the court, and, and from lesson to lesson or group to group, it's, kind of the same thing, maybe a different joke, but uh, pretty much the same drills. And so what we try to do is challenge those coaches to get outside of that comfort zone of the four or five drills that they always do, take those drills, progress them through, you know, and turn those four or five into maybe 30 different drills um, that have variations of, of you know, objectives. And, and when we can get those coaches thinking outside of the box a little bit of, of doing the same thing over and over or just giving a variation of it that, that would actually make the player uh, work on a little different aspect of the game or a different fed ball or a different speed or tempo, then, then now we're, we're kind of changing the mindset. Um, and they don't have to necessarily have a thousand drills in a drill book, although they can, if they would just be a little bit more, um, creative in, in the way they go about it. And they don't even really have to be that creative anymore because there's so much information on the Internet that if you do a Google search, I mean, you're going to come up with thousands 
of hits of different drills that can yeah. work a variety of skills. So it's not even that difficult anymore for the coaches to incorporate more drills into their repertoire. You know, I think, Lisa, the skill is, with the, I know the, the high IQ coaches I know, is they're always on the lookout for anomalies. So when they're looking at a player, they're looking at what is there that shouldn't be there in this situation. It, it could be stroke mechanics or between-point rituals or mental or emotional or, or whatever tactics. But what's, what am I seeing that shouldn't be in this picture or what should be in this picture that I'm not seeing correctly? And that's the sign of a good coach is, is now they can customize the lesson to the exact – you know, cause of the error. So to me, that's the important thing. And that's, that's one of the things I, I really picked up when I was traveling with Vic Braden for about 20 years was when he would, we would be at a pro tournament. I would be doing stats and he'd be doing TV commentary and the person would be upset out there hitting the athlete. The athlete would miss a first serve. He would cover the mic, lean over and say to me, double fall. And I'll be darned, 95% of the time, they double faulty. Because he's picking up on all the clues that the kid's not, the guy's not resetting or whatever. So that's the cool thing. Spotting the anomalies is the, is the fun part of coaching, I think. Well, and I would think from a coach's perspective, they're more likely to retain clients when they make each lesson unique, each drill session unique, you know, there's something new every time as opposed to, you know, for example, my ladies team, our lessons are pretty much the same old, same old, (laughs) you know, week after week after week, we work on the same drills for an hour and a half and, you know, it's fun and we're out there and we're hitting (laughs) balls, but, you know, we're not in search of a D1 college scholarship for ourselves anyway at that point, but, um, so it doesn't really matter for us, but for these kids, it it's huge. And, you know, the, it. I would also guess that it really would help a coach to kind of quickly um, be able to see which kids are serious about their tennis in terms of really working hard to pursue that, again, college scholarship, using that as the, the carrot here, versus the kids who are out just to learn a skill and, you know, become proficient enough to have fun with it. Because, you know, the kids who are not going to gripe when the coach introduces a new drill, you know, they're ex- the kids are excited about the new drill because it means they're going to, you know, they're going to get better that day. Um, I would think that would be a positive for a coach, but what do I know? <laughs> well, we, you know, we, we ask the, our players, you know, as coaches, we ask our players to give us, you know, the 110% or to put forth the effort. And, and if you've ever heard me speak at a, a coaches conference, you, you'll hear me say this over and over. My expectation of the coaches is, just, is the exact same thing. You know, I want that coach, uh, that pro that's out there giving it 110% as well, physically and mentally, um, whether it be, you know, coming up with a new uh, lesson plan or just changing their lesson plan or finding a way to make it more interesting. I don't care if it's a ladies team out there or a group of juniors that are 11, 12 years old that aren't trying to play college tennis. They're still just trying to make their middle school team, you know, doesn't matter. I'm looking for that coach to, to 
put forth the effort instead of, unfortunately, sometimes just kind of clocking in and clocking out. Um, and, you know, and if we can get them pushing a little bit harder on themselves to be better, uh, then I think we can find that a little bit more uh, comes out of our, our players. I'm so glad you just said middle school mm-hmm. tennis, and I'm going to go off script a little bit now. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about playing school tennis, middle school, high school. Um, I had a call the other day from a parent whose child had just made the middle school team, and the child was super excited about getting to play. And the parent was a bit concerned um, in terms of how this was going to impact the child's overall development because this child was clearly, you know, the, the best kid on the team, the only one that's playing tennis on a regular basis. And I, my take on it, and this is what I shared with the parent, is there is something to be learned every time you set foot on the tennis court. So if this is something your child's excited about, then let them do it. You know, burnout is such a huge part of tennis, especially as these kids get into the teen years. Why not let them have a piece of their own time that's, that's fun for them, that it's still tennis, they're still on the court. You know, I, and I said, have your child use their non-dominant hand in their middle school practices and strengthen the other side of their body. Have them work on, you know, some skills that maybe they're scared to work on in their regular lesson because the kids are too good, um, but now they can work on it in a low-pressure environment. I mean, was was that good advice? Well, yeah, I, I think it was good advice. I think there there's definitely pros and cons, and it, but it does depend on the level of the athlete. It also depends on the quality of the high school coach. If, if from the gamut yeah, I mean, of there's, Right up the street from, from me is uni high. They're usually number one or number two in the nation in high school. Well, they, have a, they have a high school team that probably beats most college teams. And so going to high school at uni high is a very different animal than going right down the street to Laguna Beach High where the biology teacher is the coach. He's only doing it because he makes an extra $900. So he's not really involved into it. But um, there's wonderful socialization skills, leadership skills, um, the glory of being the star of the high school team. That's huge. And it's the varsity jacket. I love all that stuff. Um, But then if you ask the D1 coaches, I have a lot of D1 coaches that do my tennis parent workshops, and their point of view is that in tennis anyway, high school tennis is not something they look at. They look at national rankings, and they look at ITF international rankings to offer scholarships. So from a, a D1 coach's eyes, they're not that interested in high school tennis. Um, they want but the is rankings. it a negative? The, yeah, that, was, that would be a little bit more of the negative. So that's where the, the parent... Well, no, I'm saying, I'm saying with the... Well, what I was asking is, is, does the D1 coach look at playing high school tennis or middle school tennis as a negative? You're saying they don't look at that as a gauge for how good the player is, but if a player does play for their school, is that a strike against them with a college coach? I, I would say no, but 
I'm I don't not think, nearly I don't as in tune with that as you guys are. Yeah, if I mean, if the junior athlete can still be, you know, top 20 in the nation, play high school ball, but don't go to all the practices and maybe only play the, you know, the conference matches and negotiate a, a deal with the high school team, then they have the best of both worlds, which is what I recommend. Um, but I think parents and, and juniors, they have to really be aware that if they are going to play, you know, D1 or D2, maybe D3 college, only like 5% of all the high school athletes play college ball. 1% play D1. D1. And the bottom line really is you cannot be a hobbyist and a top college athlete. you got to pick one. And, and this begins in around middle school. you got to decide, am I going to be a socialization hobbyist and just play the game because I love it, play it for fun whenever I feel like it? Or am I going to play it, you know, five days a week and, and be a real serious, you know, like athletic royalty kind of a person. So, and I think Bill can add to that for, for sure. Well, I tell you for sure, I, I, you know, coaching college tennis, I, I never looked at or even cared what they did in high school, where they came from, wins or losses. I did like to see that they played it uh, because I can tell you without a shadow of doubt that, uh, you know, American kids are not playing enough matches across the board. And I don't care if you're playing a middle school match, uh, a high school match, a pickup match at your club. I, you know, I want to see kids playing more, uh, more match play. Practice sets, practice matches, junior team tennis, middle school, doesn't matter to me. They need to play because nowadays, you know, they, they, mom and dad and, and coach, they really don't want them to play other than a tournament. You know, and you go to a tournament and you, you wonder why you, you lost first round or second round, you know, because you're not playing enough match play. So for, for me, it was always, you know, how many matches are they playing a week, a month, a year? That's, that's fantastic. I think the other part of this is that, you know, parents and, and these tennis pros at, at different facilities have to understand, you know, there's six or seven different levels of college tennis. And you've got the elite D1s, the top 20 teams, something like that. You know, unless you're, you know, living and, and sleeping and breathing tennis from age, you know, 12, 14 up, you're, you're not going to play there. And unless you are you know, putting forth that effort, you're just not going to make it to that, to that level. But there's so many other different levels of college tennis where you can play and maybe you're not as uh, talented or maybe you haven't put as much time into it, but you should still play college tennis. You know, that's the thing is they just, they, they, they lump college tennis all into one big uh, pot, and, and it's not. It's, you know, six, seven different levels. There's some D1 teams that are, I mean, just horrible tennis, you know, and then there's some that are NAIA or Division two that are, are just top of the charts. So understanding kind of where the level is and where you want to be um, is, is, I think, as important um, to this whole process uh, as anything. You know, where is it I'm going to be in, in the pecking order of, of tennis after middle school, after high school, uh, and into the college ranks? So For sure. See that? And, I mean, to, to your point, Frank, Frank, to your point about the quality of the coaches on the school teams, I mean, yeah. I think we have to assume for most schools, the coaching is not great <laughs> for most of them. I mean, there, there is the rare case where you've got a real 
tennis professional coaching a high school or middle school team. But in most cases, let's face it, it's it's a teacher of another top, a subject or it's a coach from another sport, like you mentioned. And I still maintain, though, even if it's not a great coach, it's worth having the experience and for at least one of your years, if not all of them. Um, I just, I've seen too many kids, you know, have great outcomes from playing for their school, whether it's building self-confidence or Bill, like you mentioned, you know, that just having the recognition at your school um, that, hey, you know, that's a tennis player, you know, and I, I mean, I just, I feel like it's a positive all around. I really feel like in only very rare cases, does it do harm to the athlete? Well, I think that's well said. It, it depends on the parent's ability to customize and organize their own unique situation. And, and Bill, I think you're, Bill's right out the money with the, the idea of practice sets. And with practice sets in mind, I have a little question for any parents out there listening. Let's, let's just say, for example, your child got into a, a national 64 draw event and it's a, you know, four or five day event, you know, travel to it. And let's just kind of go through a typical week that I think is very important for parents to understand. So let's say your child in the round of 64 wins in two sets. Later that day, they got to play the round of 32. They win in three sets. They play the round of 16 next. They win in two sets. They play the quarters. They win in three sets. Couple, now, it's been three or four days. Now they're playing in the semis. They won three. Now the next day they're in the finals. They win two sets. In, in a typical you know, four or five-day span, your child just played about 15 grueling hard sets. And so the question is, when was the last time your child played 15 sets in a week? And, right. Right? Mo- most parents are like, yeah, no, they maybe play one or two. Well, like Bill said, this is the primary reason why your child might be losing second or third round because they don't have the physical, mental, or emotional batteries to last 15 sets. And we're not even talking about adding doubles. We're just talking singles. So I think that's pretty powerful. And it's not just the physical stamina. It's, it's the emotional, as you mentioned, Frank. It's being able to gear up over and over and over again and stay in that competitive mindset. And that's an exhausting place to be mentally, right? To be in that competitive yeah. mindset is exhausting. And so to do it and then have a two-hour break and have to do it again, go to bed, wake up, do it again, have a lunch break, do it again, <laughs> you know, I mean, just, you know, it gives you a whole new respect behavior. for the Grand Slams. Yeah. But when, when Bill and I, when Bill and I do these, these workshops, we, we talk a little bit about how like, up here in L.A., we have a lot of child actors, but they have to do the same thing. They, the analogy is they have to morph from a normal kid into the character they're playing on the TV show, and for three hours they have to stay on script, stay in character. And that's what we're trying to teach junior athletes to do is pre-match preparation requires morphing into that athletic warrior where you have the mindset where you can stay on your script your, your top patterns of play and stay inside that script, you know, for three hours without going rogue and 
just it's tough to do for any adult, nonetheless, you know, a, a child. And isn't it interesting how moms and dads are the first one to say, well, you look like you were just kind of disconnected out there. You weren't interested. You weren't into that match, you know, and, and you go back and say, well, okay, when was the last time you played more than two uh, sets in a week? But yet next week when you got to that tournament, the expectation was you were going to play 12, 15, 20 really good sets in that course of that week. And, um, you know, we talk about disconnect a lot of time. There's a huge disconnect in, in parents understanding what it takes um, from from a from a match play standpoint, and from staying engaged in those those sets and those points. Um, huge disconnect there because they don't they yeah. don't get to train yeah. that way. They don't get to practice that way. Right on. How do we change then, that? How do what needs to happen for that to change? Because you know, from the parent side, what I hear is, well, my child's coach demands that they be at drills and they don't have any more time. When are they supposed to play the practice sets? You know, they're at drills every day. Um, from the coach's perspective, what I hear is, if my kids are off playing practice sets, they're not paying me. <laughs> I'm not making any money. Right. So, so how do we reconcile that? And And it goes back to, I think, Frank, you're the one that said it at the beginning is, you know, are you coaching for the coach's benefit or are you coaching for the player's benefit? I mean, yeah, what's, right what's in the player's best interest here? Well, the, the parent has to be the CEO of the project, and and all all the coaches, including myself, we're, we're hired guns, and we're part of the entourage. We have to realize that, but the, the, the parents are actually in charge, and and, and rightly so. They're, it's their own child. So I think that's one of the keys that a lot of coaches might have a different ego factor where they say things like, don't even get out of the car. I mean, i got to tell you, when I, I'm going back to Israel for a couple of weeks in May, but two years ago when I was there, we did this big tennis parent workshop with the, the board of directors for Tennis Israel and all the players, and I was so surprised. The first thing I learned was, Parents are not even allowed to get out of the car. They have to stop in front of the National Tennis Center, drop off their kids, drive away. You're not even allowed in. And I went back a year later, and all those coaches were fired. And I felt so bad. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope I didn't do this. Get the poor coaches fired. But now they're taking a whole new approach with, with their tennis there. So we'll, we'll see in a couple of months. Um, you know, what's going down. But, uh, Bill, can you add to that stuff? Well, yes, unfortunately, you know, uh, everything is tied to to the money with, with tennis pros and tennis coaches. And, you know, if they're not in clinic or they're not in their lesson, then the coach isn't getting paid. And, and, and I get that, and I'm not trying to take money out of their pocket, but the reality is if your kids aren't playing matches – all the lessons in the world are not going to help them win uh, because it's going to come down to them out there executing and being in that situation. And yeah. and the the good coaches are the ones that find a way to integrate match play into their, their clinics or their practices or point play into their private lesson. Um, or, you know what, this week, instead of doing two clinics in a lesson, you're going to play two practice matches and, and something else. I mean, just, finding a way to make it work for the player, not necessarily the coach. 
Uh, I think that the coaches have to look at the big picture, which they, they tend not to do sometimes because they're, they're always chasing that dollar. And, you know, I'm, I may get some flack over that, but that's unfortunately the reality of, of tennis pros and club tennis. And, you know, it, it's all about the lessons in the clinic as opposed to the overall development of the player. And that goes to, that goes to you know, women's tennis as well. You know, uh, coaches want them there at practice as opposed to playing another league match. Uh, because if they're playing a league match, they're not making any money off of that. Yeah, and you know what? It goes deeper than the coaches. I just want to, I want to add that it might not be solely the coach's fault. Uh, like in here in California, the really posh, nice country clubs, um, they don't pay a salary to pros. They don't get any benefits. They don't get any percentage of pro shops, and the the club takes forty percent out of the pros' lesson income. So the coaches out there generating 60% of, of the dollars that he brings in um, as an independent contractor. So from that side, I feel bad for a lot of those type of coaches because they're, they're busting their butt every hour, and you know almost half of the money is going back to the, the tennis director or the club or whoever. So that's, uh, that's well, a different. I, that's more I have a proposal. Yeah. I have a proposal. Okay, so here's my proposal. What if, and, and this is not original to me, um, we've discussed this on this podcast many, many times over the years. What if a coach set up practice matches for the players and coached the players through the practice match? So the parents are still paying the coach because the kids are still getting coaching. And if the coaches present it properly, I don't know a single parent who's going to balk at paying for their child to get coached through practice matches because the majority of us, and by us I mean parents, we sit at our kids' tournament matches and we say, oh, my God, why is he doing that? Doesn't he see that the kid's running around his backhand every time? Why isn't he forcing the child to hit a backhand? I mean, so if if there were somebody sitting on the court with our kid during the practice match and the kid's opponent has a weak backhand and our kid's not finding the backhand, then the coach can say to them on the side change, have you figured out yet where the your opponent's weakness is and how to get there? Why not? You know, and and coach them through that. And then it's a valuable use of the player's time. It's a valuable use of the, the parent's money. And the coach is really doing something positive to help these kids in competitive situations. What do you all think so, of that idea? Well, I, I think, Lisa, you'll definitely find that the, the good programs, the good coaches are already doing that. They, they, they integrate match play or charting of matches whether it be uh, you know another student charting the match and them talking through it, or the coaches charting it, or you know there's uh, you know match play where that's going on, and yeah, either the coach is on that court or they're roaming from court to court and helping coach them through situations uh, in the match. It happens. It doesn't happen enough. It needs to happen more. Um, you know, maybe coaches need to understand a way to integrate that into their lessons or a way to monetize that, but but they're there definitely needs to be more of it um, uh, across the board. So you guys, when we're talking about this type of coaching, but let's all we'll kind of just think it through. What are they coaching in that situation? Hardware or software? 
is it mental and emotional or are they changing strokes and working on, you know, athleticism? So from what I'm hearing from both you guys is that the coach has now flipped his hat over and now he's coaching mental and emotional, hitting the shot, the moment demands, charting. Um, like one of the charts that, that we use often in that situation is called the cause of error chart. So when a kid makes a mistake, the other juniors that are charting, they have to chart, was the mistake caused from one of four things? There's only four. One is uh, bad form. Two is reckless shot selection. Three is poor movement and spacing. And four is poor emotions or focus. Maybe they're so upset about the last point. And then you get some really cool data. If you see that the child makes 80% of their backhand errors off of reckless shot selection, it would be silly to pay the pro to go on the court later and just work on form, just standing still, feeding right to them. You have to fix reckless shot selection. So there definitely is, is ways, Lisa, to, for, for your idea to work. And I think it's a really great idea. So we should all bring that to the table a little bit more. But, Frank, don't you think that a lot of times these, the coaches will look at this and they'll go straight back to the, to the practice court and start feeding them more buckets of balls assuming that that's going to fix it. I mean, you're on the right track. But they have to identify what is it that was, that was the cause of the problem. It's, it's not just, you know, that poor technique or you've got to hit, right. you know, 100 more balls or 10,000 more balls. Um, identifying that can be the challenge not only for the player but also for the coach. Yeah, and that's part of spotting anomalies like we said before. But, yeah, obviously if, if movement and spacing around the ball is causing the error, you know, a high IQ coach is going to say, we're going to go spend the next two hours of your privates working on your spacing around short balls. And that's what you're, that's what's causing you to miss. Um, but um, that's just part of us as coaches, you know, being educated and all of us educating each other and helping each other, which is, you know, why we're even doing this just to try to help everybody. And, and we all learn great new tips anyway, by doing it. So, I love the idea of having the other kids chart the matches and the cause of the errors because it, it's got to make those kids become that much more aware of what's going on in their own matches. You know, when they're having to think as they're watching one of their peers play, you know, oh, gosh, um, you know, she didn't step in on that serve return and she's setting herself up to get killed on the first ball back you know, I think I'm doing that in my matches. I need to really pay attention to that and fix that. Well, after you, after you make an error, instead of getting mad that you made an error, turn your back and if you can, you know, decide what was the, the most likely cause of that error, now you're on the right track already. But, uh, yeah, I, I love the idea. If there's four kids on a court, have two playing, the other two charting, and one charts player A, one charts player B, and uh, there's a whole list of different kinds of creative charts you can do. Um, and you get, then you get the live ball. The coaches are happy. I'll give you an idea of a, a, a live ball charting drill I did with um, Callie. Joukowsky uh, is the number one girl in the 16s in California. But she's probably around top 10 in the nation. So we, we had her sparring. We had another player charting. And we did the um, court placement chart. So if she won or lost the point, 
from behind the court, we would check one or lost. If she wins or loses from inside, we would check one or lost. And she swore that she was better from behind the court. She goes, I'm comfortable back here. I'm a hard-hitting baseliner. I like to just stay back. I'm, I'm good staying back. But we did three matches, and she averaged winning 38% from behind the court, 74% inside. So she goes, okay, I'm going to try it. The next tournament, I'm going to try it. So she goes out. She wins the, the Mike Agassi, the no-quit national in Vegas, singles and doubles. The very next week, she wins J.P. Amasaki, which is one of our huge sectional events, singles and doubles. And she goes, all I did was we did that stupid placement chart, and I, I decided to get inside the court more. And those are fun things you can do with groups, you know. Absolutely, and that's hard data. It's hard. You, I mean, you can't dispute it because somebody looking at you and writing down exactly what you're doing. It's it's like watching video, but having somebody point out the detail of it. And uh, what a great learning experience for the kids, for for the charters as well as the players. Yeah, that's a good point. Is it's hard even for a kid to chart a whole set. They can't pay attention long enough. In this day and age, even the people charting are looking at the trees. And so it's going to be a little bit skewed. It's not going to be very accurate if it, at first, but, but they're learning. And the fun thing is they learn like, how many unforced errors to winners their peer group really makes. You know what I mean? They go, geez, we make like mm-hmm. 30 errors and six winners a set. Ah. And, and so it's a, it is a good reality check, right? It comes down to perception and reality. What you perceive is yeah. the problem of what you're doing versus reality of what you really are doing. And, and I'm a firm believer in those kids that are having to do the charting, they're the ones sitting on, on the sidelines. After a couple of those, we start to get that light bulb moment where the light bulb goes off and they, and they go, oh, gosh, I, I see it now. I couldn't see it when I was on the court, but I understand. And now I can translate it hopefully back to my game because – as we know, most of these kids are visual learners. If they see it happening and mm-hmm. they can recognize it or identify it, now they can take it back and implement it into their game. Right on. Absolutely. Well, guys, we are at the end of our hour, I'm sad to say, and we only got through two of our four speaking points. So that means you'll have to come back again and we can talk about the other two points that we didn't get to. Yeah, today. no worries. But- Anytime. <laughs> But thank you all both so much for taking time out. I know uh, with the time differences between East Coast and West Coast, it's sometimes tricky, but I really appreciate you all finding a time that that worked for both of you. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. So thanks so much. Very good. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and uh, have a great rest of your week and we'll see you next time on Parenting Aces.